Chapter Thirty Four, Part One of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Transmutation of Species Continued. Recapitulation of the arguments in favor of the theory of transmutation of species, their insufficiency, causes of difficulty in discriminating species, some varieties possibly more distinct than certain individuals of distinct species, variability in a species consistent with the belief that the limits of the deviation are fixed, no facts of transmutation authenticated, varieties of the dog, the dog and wolf distinct species, mummies of various animals from Egypt identical in character with living animals, seeds and plants from the Egyptian tombs, modifications produced in plants by agriculture and gardening. The theory of the transmutation of species, considered in the last chapter, has met with some degree of favor from many naturalists, from their desire to dispense, as far as possible, with the repeated intervention of a first cause. As often as geological monuments attest the successive appearances of new races of animals and plants, and the extinction of those pre-existing. But, independently of a predisposition to account, if possible, for a series of changes in the organic world by the regular action of secondary causes, we have seen that in truth many perplexing difficulties present themselves to one who attempts to establish the nature and reality of the specific character. And if once there appears ground of reasonable doubt, in regard to the constancy of the species, the amount of transformation which they are capable of undergoing may seem to resolve itself into a mere question of the quantity of time, assigned to the past duration of animate existence. Before entering upon the reasons which may be adduced for rejecting Lamarck's hypothesis, I shall recapitulate in a few words the phenomena, and the whole train of thought, by which I conceive it to have been suggested, and which have gained for this and analogous theories, both in ancient and modern times, a considerable number of votaries. In the first place, the various groups into which plants and animals may be thrown seem almost invariably to a beginner to be so natural, that he is usually convinced at first, as was Linnaeus to the last, that genera are as much founded in nature as the species which compose them. When by examining the more numerous intermediate gradations the student finds all lines of demarcation to be in most instances obliterated, even when they at first appear most distinct, he grows more and more skeptical as to the real existence of genera, and finally regards them as mere arbitrary and artificial signs, invented, like those who serve to distinguish the heavenly constellations, for the convenience of classification, and having as little pretensions to reality. Doubts are then engendered in his mind, as to whether species may not also be equally unreal. The student is probably first struck with a phenomenon, that some individuals are made to deviate widely from the ordinary type by the force of such peculiar circumstances, and with the still more extraordinary fact that the newly acquired peculiarities are faithfully transmitted to the offspring. How far, he asks, may such variations extend in the course of indefinite periods of time, and during great vicissitudes in the physical condition of the globe? His growing incertitude is at first checked by the reflection that nature has forbidden the intermixture of the descendants of distinct original stocks, or has, at least, entailed sterility on their offspring, thereby preventing their being confounded together and pointing out that a multitude of distinct types must have been created in the beginning, and must have remained pure and uncorrupted to this day. Relying on this general law, he endeavors to solve each difficult problem by direct experiment, until he is again astounded by the phenomenon of a prolific hybrid, 
and still more by an example of a hybrid perpetuating itself throughout several generations in the vegetable world. He then feels himself reduced to the dilemma of choosing between two alternatives, either to reject the test, or to declare that the two species, from the union of which the fruitful progeny has sprung, were mere varieties. If he prefer the latter, he is compelled to question the reality of the distinctness of all other supposed species which differ no more than the parents of such prolific hybrids. For although he may not be enabled immediately to procure, in all such instances, a fruitful offspring, yet experiments show that after repeated failures, the union of two recognized species may at last, under very favorable circumstances, give birth to a fertile progeny. Such circumstances, therefore, the naturalists may conceive to have occurred again and again, in the course of a great lapse of ages. His first opinions are now fairly unsettled, and every state at which he has caught has given way one after another. He is in danger of falling into any new and visionary doctrine which may be presented to him, for he now regards every part of the animate creation as a void of stability and in a state of continual flux. In this mood he encounters the geologist, who relates to him how there have been endless vicissitudes in the shape and structure of organic beings in former ages, how the approach to the present system of things has been gradual, that there has been a progressive development of organization subservient to the purposes of life, from the most simple to the most complex state, that the appearance of man is the last phenomenon in a long succession of events, and, finally, that a series of physical revolutions can be traced in the inorganic world, coeval and coextensive with those of organic nature. These views seem immediately to confirm all his preconceived doubts as to the stability of the specific character, and he begins to think that there may exist an inseparable connection between a series of changes in the inanimate world, and the capability of the species to be indefinitely modified by the influence of external circumstances. Henceforth the speculations know no definite bounds. He gives the rein to conjecture, and fancies that the outward form, internal structure, instinctive faculties, nay, that reason itself may have been gradually developed from some of the simplest states of existence, that all animals, that man himself, and the irrational beings, may have had one common origin, that all may be parts of one continuous and progressive scheme of development, from the most imperfect to the more complex. In fine, he renounces his belief in the high genealogy of his species, and looks forward, as if in compensation, to the future perfectibility of man in his physical, intellectual, and moral attributes. Let us now proceed to consider what is defective in evidence, and what fallacious in reasoning, in the grounds of these strange conclusions. Blumenbach judiciously observes that no general rule can be laid down for determining the distinctness of species, as there is no particular class of characters which can serve as criterion. In each case, we must be guided by analogy and probability. The multitude, in fact, and complexity of the proofs to be weighed is so great, we can only hope to obtain presumptive evidence, and we must, therefore, be the more careful to derive our general views as much as possible from those observations where the chances of deception are least. We must be on our guard not to tread in the footsteps of the naturalists of the Middle Ages, who believed the doctrine of spontaneous generation to be applicable to all those parts of the animal and vegetable kingdoms which they at least understood, in direct contradiction to the analogy of all the parts best known to them, and who, when at length they found that insects and cryptogamous plants were also propagated from eggs or seeds, still persisted in retaining their old prejudices respecting the infusory animalcules and other minute beings, the generation of which then had not been demonstrated by the microscope to be governed by the same laws. Lamarck has, indeed, attempted to raise an argument in favor of his system, 
out of the very confusion which has arisen in the study of some orders of animals and plants, in consequence of the slight shades of difference which separate the new species discovered within the last half-century. That is the embarrassment of those who attempt to classify and distinguish the new acquisitions, poured in such multitudes into our museums, should increase with the augmentation of their number, is quite natural. Since to obviate this, it is not enough that our powers of discrimination should keep pace with the increase of the objects, but we ought to possess greater opportunities of studying each animal and plant in all stages of its growth, and to know profoundly their history, their habits, and physiological characters throughout several generations. For, in proportion as a series of known animals grows more complete, none can doubt there is a nearer approximation to a graduated scale of being, and thus the most closely allied species will be found to possess a greater number of characters in common. Causes of the difficulty of discriminating species. But, in point of fact, our new acquisitions consist, more and more as we advance, of specimens brought from foreign and often very distant and barbarous countries. A large proportion have never even been seen alive by scientific inquirers. Instead of having specimens of the young, the adult, and the aged individual of each sex, and possessing means of investigating the anatomical structure, the peculiar habits, and the instincts of each, what is usually the state of our information? A single specimen, perhaps, of a dried plant, or a stuffed bird or a quadruped, a shell, without the soft parts of the animal, an insect in one stage of its numerous transformations, these are the scanty and imperfect data which the naturalist possesses. Such information may enable us to separate species which stand at a considerable distance from each other. We have no right to expect anything but difficulty and ambiguity if we attempt, from such imperfect opportunities, to obtain distinctive marks for defining the characters of species which are closely related. If Lamarck could introduce so much certainty and precision into the classification of several thousand species of recent and fossil shells, Notwithstanding the extreme remoteness of the organization of these animals from the type of those vertebrate species which are best known, and in the absence of so many of the living inhabitants of shells, we are led to form an exalted conception of the degree of exactness to which specific decisions are capable of being carried, rather than to call in question their reality. When our data are so defective, the most acute naturalist must expect to be sometimes at fault, and, like the novice, to overlook essential parts of difference passing unconsciously from one species to another, until, like one who is borne along in a current, he is astonished on looking back at observing that he has reached a point so remote from that whence he set out. It is by no means improbable that, when the series of species of a certain genera is very full, they may be found to differ less widely from each other than do the mere varieties or races of certain species. If such a fact could be established, it would, undoubtedly, diminish the chance of our obtaining certainty in our results but it would by no means overthrow our confidence in the reality of species. Some mere varieties possibly more distinct than certain individuals of distinct species. It is almost necessary, indeed, to suppose that varieties will differ in some cases more decidedly than some species, if we admit that there is a graduated scale of being, and assume that the following laws prevail in the economy of the animate creation. First, that the organization of individuals is capable of being modified to a limited extent, by the force of external causes. Secondly, that these modifications are, to a certain extent, transmissible to their offspring. Thirdly, that there are fixed limits beyond which the descendants from common parents can never deviate from a certain type. Fourthly, that each species springs from one original stock and can never be permanently confounded by intermixing with the progeny of any other stock. 
fifthly, that each species shall endure for a considerable period of time. Now let us assume for the present these rules hypothetically, and see what consequences may naturally be expected to result from them. We must suppose that when the author of nature creates an animal or plant, all the possible circumstances in which its descendants are destined to live are foreseen, and that an organization is conferred upon it which will enable the species to perpetuate itself and survive under all the varying circumstances to which it must be inevitably exposed. Now, the range of variation of circumstances will differ essentially in almost every case. Let us take, for example, any one of the most influential conditions of existence, such as temperature. In some extensive districts near the equator, the thermometer might never vary, throughout several thousand centuries, for more than 20 degrees Fahrenheit, so that if a plant or animal be provided with an organization fitting to it to endure such a range, it may continue on the globe for that immense period, although every individual might be liable at once to be cut off by the least possible excess of heat or cold beyond the determinable degree. But if a species be placed in one of the temperate zones, and have a constitution conferred on it capable of supporting a similar range of temperature only, it will inevitably perish before a single year has passed away. Humboldt has shown that, at Cumana, within the tropics, there is a difference of only 4 degrees Fahrenheit between the temperature of the warmest and coldest months, whereas in the temperate zones the annual variation amounts to about 60 degrees, and the extreme range of the thermometer in Canada is not less than 90 degrees. The same remark might be applied to any other condition, as food, for example, it may be foreseen that the supply will be regular throughout indefinite periods, in one part of the world, and in another very precarious and fluctuating both in kind and quantity. Different qualifications may be required for enabling species to live for a considerable time under circumstances so changeable. If, then, temperature and food be among these external causes which, according to certain laws of animal and vegetable physiology, modify the organization, form, or faculties of individuals, we instantly perceive that the degrees of variability from a common standard must differ widely in the two cases above supposed, since there is a necessity of accommodating a species in one case to a much greater latitude of circumstances than in the other. If it be a law, for instance, that scanty sustenance should check these individuals in their growth which are enabled to accommodate themselves to privations of this kind, and that a parent, prevented in this manner from attaining the size proper to its species, should produce a dwarfish offspring, a stunted race will arise, as is remarkably exemplified in some varieties of the horse and dog. The difference of stature in some races of dogs, when compared to others, is as one to five in linear dimensions, making a difference of a hundredfold in volume. Now, there is good reason to believe that species in general are by no means susceptible of existing under a diversity of circumstances, which may give rise to such a disparity in size, and, consequently, there will be a multitude of distinct species of which no two adult individuals can ever depart so wildly from a certain standard of dimensions as the mere varieties of a certain other species, the dog, for instance. Now, we have only to suppose that what is true of size may also hold in regard to color and many other attributes, and it will at once follow that the degree of possible discordance between varieties of the same species may, in certain areas, exceed the utmost disparity which can arise between two individuals of many distinct species. The same remarks may hold true in regard to instincts, for, if it be foreseen that one species will have to encounter a great variety of foes, it may be necessary to arm it with great cunning and circumspection, or with courage or other qualities capable of developing themselves on certain occasions, such, for example, as those migratory instincts which are so remarkably exhibited at particular periods, after they have remained dormant for many generations. 
The history and habits of one variety of such a species may often differ more considerably from some other than those of many distinct species which have no latitude of accommodation to circumstances. Extent of known variability in species. Lamarck has somewhat misstated the idea commonly entertained of a species, for it is not true that naturalists in general assume that the organization of an animal or plant remains absolutely constant, and that it can never vary in any of its parts. All must be aware that circumstances influence the habits, and that the habits may alter the state of the parts and organs, but the difference of opinion relates to the extent to which these modifications of the habits and organs of a particular species may be carried. Now, let us first inquire what positive facts can be adduced in the history of known species to establish a great and permanent amount of change in the form, structure, or instinct of individuals descending from some common stock. The best authenticated examples of the extent to which species can be made to vary may be looked for in the history of domesticated animals and cultivated plants. It usually happens that those species, both of the animal and vegetable kingdom, which have the greatest pliability of organization, those which are most capable of accommodating themselves to a great variety of new circumstances are most serviceable to man. These only can be carried by him into different climates, and can have their properties or instincts variously diversified by differences of nourishment and habits. If the resources of a species be so limited, and its habits and faculties be of such confined and local character that it can only flourish in a few particular spots, it can rarely be of great utility. We may consider, therefore, that in the domestication of animals and the cultivation of plants, mankind have first selected those species which have the most flexible frames and constitutions, and have then engaged for ages in conducting a series of experiments, with much patience and at great cost, to ascertain what may be the greatest possible deviation from a common type which can be elicited in these extreme cases. Varieties of the dog, no transmutation. The modifications produced in the different races of dog exhibit the influence of man in the most striking point of view. These animals have been transported into every climate and placed in every variety of circumstances. They have been made, as a modern naturalist observes, the servant, the companion, the guardian, and the intimate friend of man. And the power of a superior genius has had a wonderful influence not only on their forms, but on their manners and intelligence. Different races have undergone remarkable changes in the quantity and color of their clothing. The dogs of Guinea are almost naked while those of the Arctic Circle are covered with a warm coat both of hair and wool, which enables them to bear the most intense cold without inconvenience. There are differences of another kind no less remarkable, as in size, the length of their muzzles, and the convexity of their foreheads. But, if we look for some of those essential changes which would be required to lend even the semblance of a foundation for the theory of Lamarck, respecting the growth of new organs and the gradual obliteration of others, we find nothing of the kind. For, in all these varieties of the dog, says Cuvier, the relation of the bones within each other remains essentially the same. The form of the teeth never changes in any perceptible degree, except that, in some individuals, one additional false grinder occasionally appears, sometimes on the one side and sometimes on the other. The greatest departure from a common type, and it constitutes the maximum of variation as yet known in the animal kingdom, is exemplified in those races of dogs which have a supernumerary toe on the hind foot with the corresponding tarsal bones, a variety analogous to one presented by six-fingered families of the human race. Lamarck has thrown out a conjecture that the wolf may have been the original of the dog, and eminent naturalists are still divided in opinion on this subject. It seems now admitted that both species agree in the period of gestation. Mr. Owen has been unable to confirm the alleged differences in the structure of a part of the intestinal canal. 
Mr. Bell inclines to the opinion that all the various races of dogs have descended from one common stock, of which the wolf is the original source. It is well known that the horse, the ox, the boar, and other domestic animals which have been introduced into South America and have one rowled in many parts, have entirely lost all marks of domesticity, and have reverted to the original characters of their species. But dogs have also become wild in Cuba, Haiti, and in all the Caribbean islands. In the course of the 17th century, they hunted in packs from 12 to 50, or more, in number, and fearlessly attacked herds of wild boars and other animals. It is natural, therefore, to inquire to what form they reverted. Now, they are said by many travelers to have resembled very nearly the shepherd's dog, but it is certain that they were never turned into wolves. They were extremely savage, and the ravages appeared to have been as much dreaded as those of wolves, but when any of their wolves were caught and brought from the woods to the towns, they grew up in the most perfect submission to man. Many examples might be adduced to prove that the extent to which the alteration of species can be pushed in the domestic state depends on the original capacity of the species to admit a variation. The horse has been as long domesticated as the dog, yet its different races depart much less widely from a common type. The ass has been still less changed, the camel scarcely at all, yet these species have probably been subjected to the influence of domestication as long as the horse. End of chapter 34, part 1.